0: Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show takes guests in the barrel, behind the scenes with the people who've been there, done that, and seen the results. Revenue Builders covers best practices for scaling and growing your business while sharing the pitfalls to avoid. Great conversation, solid interviews, tangible takeaways to help you succeed. If you enjoy the content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people.
1: Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John Kaplan here with 5 times CRO, author of the wildly successful book, The Qualified Sales Leader, and my good friend, John Mac, Johnny Mac, John McMahon, sorry. Johnny, how are you, brother?
2: That's what you call me when we're playing golf. That's right. John Mack, that's right. (laughs) All right. Good to see you, Cap. Good to see you. I'm excited about today.
1: Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Me too. So what I'd like to introduce you to uh, uh, a great guest. Uh, Today, we have Jamie Buss with us. And Jamie leads the global sales and customer success teams at Articulate, prior to Articulate. Jamie held senior sales leadership roles for five years at Zendesk. Uh, during her 10 year, the company grew from 300 million to a billion plus, And she led the SDR, BDR, SMB commercial and enterprise teams there. And during her 20 plus year sales career, she's held sales and leadership positions at Andreessen Horowitz, VMware, Coverity. Uh, uh, Meraki. What is that? Mer- sorry.
2: maraki
1: Sorry, man. I, I even wrote down, <laughs> I couldn't even read my own writing. I said, Hey, make sure you can pronounce these. So Meraki, sorry, co-raid, uh, ink to me. Um, she's got just an incredible, um, incredible, diverse background. Um, a, uh, a lot of different experiences Is a great up and coming CRO leader with a great perspective so Johnny let me introduce to you Jamie Buss. Hey Jamie good, good glad to have you
0: No oh, thank you both for having me Yeah happy to be here
1: <clears throat> Jamie thanks for being with us um, like I said in the intro I love your I love your background so if you don't mind why don't we just kind of start there so I was listening to one of your other podcasts and you and I had a brief conversation. You started um, in environmental engineering uh, in, in school, and uh, and then you wound up at, at at Deloitte. So take us a little bit from just the progre- uh, career progression from you know uh, what you thought you were going to do, then how you wound up at Deloitte, and and kind of like what some of the key takeaways were in each of those positions. Because I think it's a great, great diverse background.
0: Yeah, it is. I think when I told my parents that I was going to pursue an engineering degree, my mom kind of did a double take and was like, you're really good in, you know, you're doing really well in English. You're not super strong in math. I was like a B student in math in high school. In fact, told by my high school head of the math department, he didn't know why I was trying so hard because I would never get better than a B in math. Which wow. you should never tell a student or anyone that's working for you, by the way. Um, but it didn't. It didn't stop me because I, you know, I should have realized really early on. I'm super driven, and I just don't let things defeat me. And I wanted to do if I was going to go to college, I wanted something that was going to be difficult and then set me up to be successful post college. And for whatever reason, engineering resonated with me. I also am a big worrier, another theme of my life. And I was worried about global warming back in 1993 when I graduated high school to date myself a little bit. I was worried about it back then. And so I wanted to learn more about the implications of what we might be doing to the planet and how we might be able to help it's really an economics problem. I learned later. It's not, yeah, it's an economics issue more than it is anything else. But at the time I was a naive 18-year-old and thought I could do make make a difference. And so environmental engineering was where I selected to go. And honestly, I didn't even look at that many schools. I just, and I didn't even know Cal Poly was hard to get into. I had no idea. I'm like, oh, Cal Poly has an environmental engineering degree. I'm going to apply to that. And everyone's like, you got into Cal Poly. I'm like, yeah, I don't, is that a thing? Like, I don't know. <laughs> idea. I just was going to apply with whatever had that, uh, what had that offering. And there weren't many schools that did at the time. So I worked very hard to get my three, five in my engineering. My goal was to graduate with honors. Um, I also have a, a little bit of mild dyslexia. Um, my daughter has it much more worse than I do. So I've learned a lot about learning differences since, uh, I've, I've had her. Um, so I, didn't school isn't like a natural thing for me. I have to work a bit harder. I have to go to every office hour, and I have to study a little bit more probably than Amen. Most, that most kids do. Uh, which is why Meraki I don't know, like Meraki Maraki. That's actually a vowel thing. I, I I'm really, right I, with I, you. I really but nobody
1: agree. asked me. But nobody asked me about if Boise State was hard to get into. So <laughs> I'm I'm with you until then. Go ahead, keep going. <laughs>
0: Oh, so I worked very hard because my goal was, you know, my dad was originally a teacher, but then moved into sales. And so when we were a teacher, you know, we didn't have a lot of money when he went into sales, we had, you know, we weren't rich, but we had more money and I was comfortable and I wanted to be, I knew I was going to be off payroll once I got out of college and I wanted to be comfortable and I wanted to pursue a career that was going to be lucrative, not just, um, I wasn't looking for something I was passionate about. I was looking for something that was going to Put set me up to pay the bills in the long run yeah. and consulting firms taught you how to be professional, and I could kind of con- retool myself in technologies. I didn't really learn technology very well in college, and that was in '98 when Silicon Valley was went bananas and thought that they could form companies that didn't make money and that was going to last. And so I'm like technology, that seems like a great place to be. And so Deloitte gave me the platform to retool. Um, It was an ERP software, but at least was an entrance into that at the time and also paid the bills so that I, you know, could still afford the things I was used to <laughs> once I was off payroll. So that's kind of like the, the transition, I think, between those two. I was only in consulting for about a year. Um, that wasn't the most natural fit for me, I would say. Um, I can do programming, but it's very it it my brain works very hard to do it. So the Silicon Valley was like this glittering jewel that was just so tempting that I I left that job and got a job at Inc. me was where I landed at the time. Again, not even knowing much about technology, but knowing that I wanted to try to get an inroads there. So I joined IT, did that for six months, and then the sales engineering um, VP saw me present to them because I was building a product for the sales team it was an order management tool at the time. I was helping PM that project. And he said, you really would be good with customers. Have you considered being a sales engineer? Uh, and I was like, no, <laughs> I always look down my nose at the business c- school students in college. <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> I was an arrogant, you know, engineering student. So, of course, I didn't consider sales at the time. Um, but then I did and I and I loved it. And I was like that that was the path was like, OK, this is the path I should have been on because I love being part of a team, which I always have. I loved being competitive. I loved winning. I loved Building trusted relationship with, with clients. Um, I was always the type of seller who I want to sell if it I want to find if it's a good fit. If it's not a good fit, I'm gonna go spend my time somewhere else. I'm not gonna, I don't, I don't want to sell you to just to I don't want just the win. I want that to be a to be the right fit. And so having the technology background helped me, I think, when I made that switch to technology sales, because I could be a bit more empathetic having come a bit from that background.
1: When did you grab the bag? So started off as a sales engineer um, at me And then how did you transition to actually carrying the quote on your shoulders? And t- tell us a little bit about what that was like.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I actually was laid off from me That was in 2002. And Everyone around me at the company was being laid off. And again, very naive, 20-something-year-old. I'm like, "Well, I'm not getting laid off. I did not have a plan. I wasn't looking for a new job. I had my head completely buried in the sand. Super naive. And then one day, I walk into the office, and I think it was, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was the person who I was reporting to at the time says, I'm going to need to sit down and talk with you today and i was like oh no that doesn't sound good and i walked in and there was a cobra document on the table which i had no idea what that was like a cobra, what's that <laughs> <laughs> what is this thing you're talking about um so that was a bit devastating at the time because i was now without a job in a time when all of the companies were popping like bubbles around me mm-hmm. so I-, I found myself you know, fortunately i had some savings i had had been smart in that regard at least but I found myself in a position where now I want to make a transition from sales engineering to carrying a bag. I've never carried the bag before and I'm in a market that's depressed. Yeah. 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 It was a perfect storm of, of challenge, I would say. And I would spend, I treated it like a full-time job to find a job. I spent every single day on the internet. I scoured jobs. I took interviews. I was trying to sell people on why they should take a chance on me to be a seller, I was even debating, should I just stick with sales engineering for a little longer to get into a company and then make a transition? And then a friend of mine had said, you know, Kirk Bowman and Carl Eschenbach and Brian Cox all ended up at, they're all over at VMware. And I've heard Brian is hiring on his team. Have you reached out to him? And I said, nope, but I'm due to do that next. So, and I didn't know anything about VMware. I had no idea that it was a hot company. This was back in 2002. I think it was only like, it wasn't very much, maybe 30 million in revenue. I can't even Mm -hmm. remember that back then, to be honest, but it wasn't that big. I didn't know much about it, but I knew that if anyone was going to take a chance on me to make a leap into a new position, it would be someone that had seen me and, and, it performed before and trusted me. So I met with Brian, convinced him, at least give me a shot to interview. Met with Carl, convinced him, Carl, I know you're taking a chance. Here's why I'm the person you should take a chance on. Made it through him. Then had to sit down with Diane Green, who was founder and CEO at the time. She was still interviewing reps back then. So I had to prep. My husband's an engineer. I said, what do I tell to Di- what do I tell say to Diane Green to convince her to trust me that I'm the right type of person to take a risk on since I'm not proven like so many all of her other reps had been like field reps before. I was this, you know, unknown quantity. And fortunately I was able to. Convince her as well that I was worth the risk. And that's my first selling job. I came in, I had a territory that was underperforming. It was horrible. I was the bottom performer rep for at least six months, if not longer. And every single day I walked in, I said, I got to turn this around. I got to turn this around. And I just, I got to build the bridge and walk it. I just have to keep going. Like there's no other way. This cannot be a failure. So I've got to figure it out. And I didn't know anything. The phone was ringing and Brian would walk behind me my first day at work. I didn't know how to use Siebel, which we ran. I didn't know how to sell, really. Like, I'd been a sales engineer. I'm not the same thing. He's walking behind me and he goes, Aren't you going to pick that phone up?
1: <laughs> <laughs> the phone's <laughs> ringing. Pick it
0: up. Yep. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm going to say. There was no training. It was like literally 100% on the job training. It was like, Here's your phone. Here's your laptop. Was it a laptop? It was a desktop, I think, back then. I'm not even hmm. sure. That was a long time ago. I just remember sitting down, no instruction. I'm like, well, guess we're in the deep end, and I'm gonna have to swim. So, gonna have to figure it out. So that was my that was my trial by fire transition into sales.
2: Mm. And so, uh, Jamie, yeah. when was the pivotal moment? You said I have to turn it around. I have to turn it around. Was there a pivotal moment when you look back when you think, oh, okay, I got it. I think I've turned it around.
0: So what I'm really good at is I never assume that I'm the best at anything. And I am really keen to understand who's the best at what and learn from each of them. So I was like, who's the best guy asking the tough questions. I'm going to shadow that person and understand how to navigate that conversation is a very big channel uh, driven uh, sale. Who's the best at driving channel partners? Why are they good? Why is that working? So then I sat with that person and understood that. I knew that I needed to brush up on my technical acumen with regards to virtualization because that was a bit of a new space for me. I spent time with the sales engineers. How does this work? Why does this work? When customers say this, what is my answer that I'm going to give? So what I did was I just kept trying to get better at all the areas that I saw other people being successful with. And I kind of created my own playbook by borrowing and piecing together from a lot of other people. So I knew that I was creating a formula and then I would just have to put time into that formula. Then by like probably the nine months, 12 months mark, I had the most transactions out of anybody else. We had large deals. We were one of the top performing teams because I'd built trusted channel partners, my customers really trusted me. I'd found out how to build like a lot of many to one type of engagements because it was very much a land and expand. It was a very product led growth, both in terms of your initial land, and then also spread virally once it landed to to expedite that virality. You you needed to do a lot of that many to one leverage or channel partners, leverage marketing, that type of thing. So I was able to like, just build the momentum And then it started, then, then I didn't have to work so hard anymore. Then I started getting referrals. The partners were bringing me opportunities I didn't know about. They were closing deals that I didn't know about. And so once you kind of hit, I hit that critical mass, I got to the point where I had repeatable success, but it did take a lot of research and patience and grit, (laughs) to get to that point. Cause I hated being the bottom performer but I felt like everyone expected me to be the bottom because so many of my peers would look, would actually say to me, I'm not sure why you're here. You don't, you've never carried a back.
2: Mm. Wow. So do you think I felt your like I had a lot
0: to, sorry. think
2: your engineering background helped at all and trying to turn it around.
0: I do. I think that having the engineering background, I can pick up what, how things work very quickly and why they work. And so I could, I knew I could carry a conversation with a customer farther. And I also knew when to hold things back and have a reason to come back and have the conversation again. So I think it allowed, empowered me to kind of drive things forward in a way that I think if I'd been less technical, I would have been more reliant on a sales engineer and would have made, perhaps slowed me down a little bit more. Yeah.
1: yeah. So then you get the um, flywheel going, so to speak, okay. and getting in your groove uh, at vmware how, how did your career progress from there
0: well as you probably know i mean vmware was growing at 100 percent per year at that point i mean literally we would were at the we were at the point where I think some of these probably consumption model companies are now where customers will call us at the end of the quarter and we'd be like, unless you can place a hundred thousand dollar order, I'm going to have to talk to you in a couple of days at the beginning of the next quarter. Like we literally didn't have time to (laughs) to process or take orders that that is an environment. I have to say, I've not been in since then. That was a unique environment because it was growing so quickly. It was growing with people and with roles. And so I was able to move within 18 months. I moved into my first frontline manager role, which perhaps we get into at some point, that was probably the hardest transition of my life. Harder than going from a sales engineer to seller was going from seller to frontline manager. And I think that's challenging for a lot of people, regardless of the type of role they're in. I did that, I can't remember how long, maybe a year and a half, something long, maybe similar timeframe. Then when Brian Cox was getting promoted, his position was opening up and I interviewed for the director role to run all of North America sales for that team. Got the opportunity to do that. And then my last year, I ran a field team for the West Coast because I hadn't run the uh, field sellers. I'd been running more of like the commercial reps, which were more kind of hybrid inside sales based. And so I ran the field team for my last year there. So I was able to capitalize on the growth that they've had and invest in my career and get me to a point where. I felt like I could go run a team. Like if I were to go to a smaller company, I'd learned a lot and I could take that with me and and go to a smaller company at that point.
1: Yeah, let's stay on that, Johnny, if you're good with it. I'd love to dig in here on this transitioning from individual contributor to a leader. I've heard you speak on it before. I think you just have a wonderful point of view on it. You've done some things at other companies to build programs around it. At the top level, just kind of because there's a lot of our listeners out there are you know in that kind of you know reality of you know how do I transition from an individual contributor to a manager what can I learn from somebody else about the experiences what so let's just dig in there cuz I know you have an awesome
0: point of view on it yeah this i'm very passionate about this topic because I don't think there are enough good managers out there. I think that people feel that to progress their career, they have to go into a leadership role and that's their path, instead of really considering the you know, concept that's in radical candor that um, uh, she when 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 she talks about the concept of rock star versus superstar or right, you know, there you don't you can be a rock star in your own role. You don't have to go be a leader. And a lot of people, I think, make the transition into leadership. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. And then even if they should, I feel like there's not a lot of support for people moving into that role. And I think this is probably true in a lot of companies, a lot of companies I've been at. You know, fortunately, I've been very good from promoting within. I would not be where I am today if people didn't believe from promoting within. I'm very, very pro promoting from within. Mm. But I also realized there's a gap when you move to a manager. Now, the reason it was so difficult for me was because, again, there was no training for it. And when I went, when it, when, when I went into it, I think people come in as a manager kind of on one of two ends of a spectrum. They either come in and they're the buddy and they're the friend that's going to be a recipe for disaster or they come in and they're too hard and they're kind of an a-hole to keep it PG 13. Right. So you kind of come in on either end. And I think I came in too far on the not nice side of like, well, this is what I do to be successful. So my job is to make sure everyone did what I did because my formula worked. And what I had to, what I had to realize was, is that is not my job. My job was to Block and tackle for the team. What is preventing, how could the team that, that I'm working with be more productive tomorrow than they were today? What is standing in our way from doing that? And how can I contribute to improving that? So that was my number one of my epiphanies. And the other one was, is that, you know, you don't treat everybody exactly the same um, that reports to you. You know, if you're one of your top performer comes and makes a last minute one-off request, yeah, you trust them. That, that's fine. Let the, let them do that one-off request. But if another employee who's not been performing and you've been having performance management conversations, then that's you handle that differently. So I think what I thought was everything has to be the same for everyone instead of thinking it's got to be fair, but not equal. And I had to learn that I think over time is that Yeah. So, you know, people are going to earn different levels of privileges. I mean, I see it with my own kids. (laughs) One earns a privilege and the other doesn't. And so I'm going to treat you fairly, but it's not going to be equal. So that was another lesson. And so by the time I got to Andreessen Horowitz and I actually had the time to sit down and think about what would be a practical way of helping people, A, determine if they're going to want to be leaders and B, help them be prepared for the role so that when they are leaders, they're a better manager than they would have been had they not had any programming. So that's where I the first idea of kind of a workshop for first-time managers kind of came came about. That's where I first started to think and, and created at least a like a presentation based on it. When I got to Zendesk, I was actually had an enablement team, and what we built was a six month program that people could be nominated into, and you 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 would want you you could raise your hand and say you wanted to be in it. We had a certain amount of criteria because obviously you can't just put everybody in if they're not in good standing and all that kind of stuff. And then they were assigned a mentor, they were um, given certain exercises all around leading yourself, leading the business, leading leading the people. So we had different modules and exercises that were practical applications of each of those segments, if you will, so they could get a taste of what it's like to mentor someone else or coach someone else through a forecast. What is it like when you're going to lead a team meeting? Um, how about a, a negotiation? A top getting kind of being uh-huh. like the the heavy in a negotiation, if you will. So there was two good outcomes that came of that program. And, and I made this clear from the beginning. Either you go in the program and you realize that this is not the job for me. I do not like this. This is not what I want to sign up for. Then great. You tried on the shoe. It didn't fit. Now you can go focus on being an IC, be the best IC you possibly can be because this role wasn't the right fit for you. So I made it very clear that success wasn't you are a manager after it. The, the clear success criteria was, You either clearly knew you did or didn't want to lead after the six-month program. And so that allowed people to not have any shame in feeling like this isn't fitting right. I don't want to do this because what I was trying to do is create better leaders so that more people would have managers that they want to work for and that the people would find other career paths to support themselves if leadership really wasn't the right fit.
2: Mm -hmm. But hey, Jane, can I touch on something that uh, you brought up in the beginning of the podcast where? you said that you have a little learning disability and your daughter does also. Do you think that that has helped you when you're coaching or trying to develop other people? Because you understand that they learn different people learn differently.
0: I think that it does give me a higher degree of empathy for like neurological or learning differences. Because not everyone, like I, I can see members of my team, and and one person might view someone as being not being assertive enough. And I'm and, and to me, it's like, no, they are being assertive, but in their way, they're just not how you are. Your version of it isn't the same as this person's version of it. And that doesn't mean that one is better or worse. It's just different. Um, so I think that. I look at it as an advantage because I think it allows me to, I don't know, pattern match it, it, it pattern match and, and find paths to success by recombining a lot of things. And I think it also gives me a greater deal of understanding for others because we're all works in progress. And that's something that my current CEO always says as you know, part of our HCO, our human-centered organization framework, is like we're all works in progress. So I don't expect one person to be doing the same way as everybody else. And that's the, and that's the right way. Um, and also, because I do le- work for an e-learning company, not everybody learns the same way. So how do you make sure when you're communicating with people that it's, con- it's consumable for, for that audience as well, because I think. Right. That that's- and then
2: some audiences might learn, you know, or people learn in different ways, whether it's kinesthetic, auditory, or visual, does that, also come up either in the company that you're in now where you do e-learning or in your coaching
0: yeah it does because i i think because i'll know like i'll i at least if you know about yourself how best you learn then it's like don't if with me it's like don't give me a huge blocks of text with no bolds in it i don't know what to read like i literally i'll just get lost and i won't read it (laughs) So I think it's important to know your, you know, know your audience. So if I'm communicating with one of my direct reports, what's the easiest way for me to send this to you? What do you want to do a quick chat about it? Do you want me to do a quick outline in Slack? Do you prefer that I just, because we have you know a quick recording of it and I can shoot it over to you so you can I can walk you through it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, yes, I think it is important to recognize that not everyone is in your customers too. Not everyone is going to consume the information you're sharing in the same way. And what's the most appropriate way for them?
1: Yeah. So, so Johnny, um, I have a question uh, regarding the I want to really dig into this. I, I called an emerging leaders program. I think you called it the rising star program, which I really like. I find that companies today just really do this poorly. They really do it poorly. I remember, Johnny, coming to you back in the days at PTC and asking you, um, hey, you know what do I got to do to get promoted? And I I loved your advice back in the day. Your advice is your advice was if you want the next job, act like you already have it. And I've just taken that over the years to really understand the responsibility of a leadership team to provide people opportunities to understand what the next job is going to be like. And I find the most elite companies on the planet they do this really well. What I found you've done, Jamie, is you've really formalized it. So a lot of it's informal. They'll take somebody who's a rising star and they'll say, okay, let's give them more opportunities or what have you. But you actually created a program around it. So for the um, for the benefit of our listeners, would you kind of dig deep in like, what were the major components of the program? Like what were the major learning blocks what do you think emerging leaders need to understand how did you allow them to understand that how did you get other leaders involved in that to give them exposure to who these up and coming leaders were so would you mind just digging into the mechanics of it
0: yeah absolutely so i don't have that deck in front of me but let me go from memory on like what and how yeah. how, we, how we built that out so we had it broken up into the three components. So let me give you some examples of lead the business. Okay. So you have to, what are the components of leading the business? It's going to be forecasting, pipeline management, pipe gen, negotiation, those types of basic, you know, selling structures. And so you would, you not not this would't be the first thing you do in the program but once you've gotten maybe you know a third of the way through you would be assigned someone on the team that you would basically be their forecasting coach and so yeah. you would meet with them and you would review their forecast for the next week their forecast notes any change the best case worst case or commit, why those changes were happening, um, any deals that you lost, why did you lose them, what did you use to backfill it? So it really teaches you, you know, I think that that when you're a rep, that you feel like, okay, I've got to fill in all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. Like it just feels like a lot of work. But then you realize like, once you're in leadership, you kind of have to understand what's going on in the business because your job is going to be to accurately commit, especially if you're in a public company, like you have to be able to tell you, you need to know where you're going (laughs) to land. So giving, so we would give them practical experience on that we would have them join calls with another rep. And if it was you know, somewhat of a you know, negotiation or whatnot, because in, as a leader, as you know, you've got to step in and be able to help. If, like limit of liability comes up or any number of long list of data residency, all these things that'll typically come up in a negotiation. You need to be able to help out and, and jump in with that. Um, we would, in terms of lead yourself, we would have them take now I'm going to blank because now I've been at this other company now for a bit. Um, which personality profiling um, tool we used? Let's yeah. just say it's DISC. some
1: type of self assessment.
0: Self assessment. We used yep. DISC Articulate. I can't remember the one that they used. The, I'm the one that introduced it at Sundusk, and now I'm blanking on what it's called. I no, problem. It to you after no problem. No problem. Um, but what that did is it allowed it. it it would give you insight into how you operate and then you having the understanding of how your team would Very operate good, yeah. based on the profile so that you would learn okay well in this profile type they're really good at um working with others and getting collaboration but they think you know but they look at a due date as a suggestion not a deadline right so <laughs> <laughs> that's good that's to know it's good to recognize that about your peers. So, so then we would have them learn about themselves, what their strengths were, what happens when they get stressed, what do they lean into naturally, but then what, what would they, you know, if you naturally get really kind of micromanaging, how do you lean into curiosity instead of trying to control everything yourself? And so that's kind of like how do you lead yourself? And then in terms of leading the people, we would assign them a mentor. So what we would do is we would solicit Um, directors and above to um, be a mentor within the program. And then their job was to, how did the forecast call go? What could have been, was anything could have been better? Or like they would basically have the mentee or the person in the program would would leverage the mentor to kind of like, hey, this is how this went. I I don't think I, I don't know if I handled this right. What do you think? So the mentor would be there to bounce things along so that they could learn how, how to coach, right. Ask, not be told what to do, but you ask questions, you know, it's, it's the teaching them to fish instead of doing it for you. So then the mentee would kind of teach them the coaching aspect of leading the people as well. And then I would also run like a a workshop on, like what are the basic building blocks of good management? And I use a lot of first break, all the rules. Marcus Buckingham's Mm. book from a long time ago. I read a lot. Yeah. I just, I'm a very practical person. Like I'm very pragmatic. And I feel like that book gives a lot of really good practical advice. Um, So we did, we built a lot of principles based on that. Um, And then there's another model that my exec coach introduced me to that I introduced as well called the scarf model, which walks you through how people react when stressed or when faced with change. So it's either like their security could be threatened, um, their certainty, their autonomy, the relatedness or sense of fairness. And so whenever I would teach folks, whenever you are going to introduce a change, is it possible that it's going to strike a psychological response on any of these fronts? And then how best to prepare for that and how best deliver that change in a way that'll mitigate that potential, you know, negative psychological reaction as you're introducing change.
1: I love that. What? What in in building all of that? Tell me about the results. What did you find? What did the data tell you? Did we get did we get people more prepared? Did they were they more successful faster? Uh and the other thing I'd like to know is the um when you think back on it What do you really like about what you did, and what would you do? What are some of the ahas or the gotchas? So people listening to this say, "Oh, that's a great idea." What are some of the gotchas? So I'll back up because I know I asked a lot there. Start with the results, and then tell us about
0: what you learned. Yeah, absolutely. So we probably had about eighty percent of the people that went through the program at least would say, "I loved the program." This is in this has reinstilled my belief that I want to be a leader. So most people that opted in still continued to want to do the job after the fact, which is great. And then 20% would say, someone even bail out partway through and be like, thank you for the opportunity, but this wasn't for me. Like, great. That's fantastic. You know what? You didn't have, neither one of us had to waste time with you getting into that role and you being unhappy. Now you can now we can invest in you where you're going to be happy and I made sure I really tried to no one should feel shamed. I really wanted everyone to feel encouraged and then supported in, in the right way. So we had a very high success a very high satisfaction rate and then in terms of the amount of managers we were able to promote from within we very rarely had to hire externally for management Amazing. once that program was built. And that was, to be honest, I had two goals, right? One was I, I really, my passion project is to help build more great managers and leaders in the world. That That's what I love. I, I really want to lean into that in, in my career. But the second practical problem I had is I knew I was growing and have had to add a lot of people and I didn't have enough managers on the bench. I didn't have enough, of my own people that I grew, self that I, that I grew myself that I could easily put in those roles and trust and could work and mentor them. So that was, that was the practical problem I also was trying to solve. And I did. And even, even upon, you know, I left in the fall, but even up to that point, so many of those folks that have been through the program were getting promoted and I look at that as a huge win. And in fact, even at my current company, I don't currently have the bandwidth to go build this all myself right now, to be honest. I've got I got a lot on my plate, but mm-hmm. our people team has has loved the idea and we're starting the building blocks of building our own version of it at Articulate because we have found we are promoting from within, but the managers don't have that prep work that we had. Um, when I, when I did build the program. So I'm very like an enablement was a key part of this. I can't take all the credit. I had like the initial idea and I had a fabulous enablement business partner who really dug in and helped me build out the details. So this was a team effort. This was definitely Jamie, the hero did everything. Absolutely not. I had extremely good business partner. Um, and what I learned was actually that the program should have probably been a bit broader. I solved it for my own personal problem, right, of wanting sales managers. But what we found is there was a thirst for this within the company. So what I should have done and in retrospect we will do in the future is build a rising stars or emerging leaders program. There should be a basic track that everyone's in. And then there should be some specific modules that support the, the, the disciplines, right? So you can bring in people from engineering or success or any other part of the the people organization, anyone else within the org should be able, a good portion of the content you should be able to do, you know, have everybody um, be relevant to, to, and then then maybe specialize it a bit because people were hungry for this, but I built it in a very sales specific way. And so it wasn't the, the practical um, applications weren't as relevant for people that are outside of the org. So I think that is something to consider is that it, the more specific you make it, that's great for that one group, but you really need to think more broadly if you want others to participate too.
2: I'm just curious, Jamie, of the 80, 20, the 80 that's, you know, wanted to become managers and the 20% that dropped out, could you almost forecast ahead of time? who is going to drop out and who is going to take the program or were some, or was some of it a surprise?
0: I, you know, I don't like to make an assumption um, about, about folks. So I don't know that I, I, I don't, you know, honestly, I don't know that I had a preconceived notion. I, I just was like, you might think you want to do it and you might not end up wanting to do it. So, there were some that I w- that I was probably skeptical that would make it through and did. And I was like, wow, that's that's I'm glad we did the program because I wouldn't have made that assumption, right? right, right. It surprised me. You stepped up in a way that we we would not have seen that side of you had you not had the opportunity to show that to us.
1: And I'm assuming you had to have some type of nomination process. It's not just like, hey, that seems like it's cool. Let me go, you know, go in there waste a little time, waste your time, waste my time. And then there's got to be some commitment. How did you tell me about that? Like, how did you build that to, it's got to be something that it's aspirational and it takes takes effort to get into it.
0: Yeah, we had, um, so we did have a set of criteria. So you could, if you wanted to be in the program, you could raise your hand for it, but there was a certain set of criteria that had to be met in order for you to um get into the program. I think we had some performance related metrics in there. We had some tenure. So if you'd only been, if you, you know, if you hadn't if you've only been with us for like a quarter or two, you haven't really had a chance to like yeah. really you needed to have enough proficiency at your current job that we knew you could spend time in a mentorship program and your current, your day job wouldn't suffer. So Mm -hmm. we had some, some criteria around that. And then your manager had to be in agreement as well. So you needed to meet with your manager, express why you were interested in it, you know, um, why this you had the bandwidth and whatnot. So that in case there was a performance concern, your manager could say, I want to support you in this. And I'm really happy that you're interested in this path before we get there, we have some things we need to work on in in your current role. And I want to help you do that so that I can support you in the next turn of putting you in the program. I
2: love that. There
0: there was a, you know, there was an opportunity to have a coaching conversation and a realistic one. If somebody really felt they were ready and the manager felt that we still needed some work to do on their current role.
1: Last one on this before we change gears, because I want to get into the massive things that you've learned about product led growth and like the different variations of that and how to resource an organization. I think that's a real important topic, but one that's burning for me right now on this, on this rising stars versus rock stars, little pet peeve of mine. I see companies that also don't do this very well. You have somebody that's a rock star in the role that they're in. They're happy, their family's happy. Uh, but yet the dialogue that goes around the company is what's wrong with that person? Why don't they want to lead? Are they not committed to the company? And I think companies just sometimes really mess that up. They're like, people want to be an individual contributor and they, that's where they want to be. And, and in some companies, you can be like a pariah. You can be treated like uh, there's something wrong with you mm-hmm. if that's what you want to do. And I speak to the listeners out there that are like in those individual contributor roles and um, and doing them really, really well. And really, really, they find great satisfaction. Um, you know, not only speak to the individuals, speak to companies making sure they don't make a mistake on running those people out of a company. Does that resonate for you?
0: Yes, it does. And I think that it's very short-sighted and unfortunate that companies are that way. If, you know, for folks that are in an individual contributor role and feeling this sense of stigma because you don't want to go into a leadership role, I would say it sounds like your company's issue, not your issue. Um, And that, you know, every day that we wake up and work for a company, we're voting with our dollar. And every day you wake up, you're deciding to work for that company every day. And you want to give your best every single day that you decide to wake up and work there. And the companies that are shaming people because they feel that one career path is the progression way and another way is not progressing, Um, then they're going to lose their top performers. And another company who doesn't believe in weaponizing shame and believes in allowing people to thrive as humans, as what they're good at and what they enjoy doing, they will go to a competitor that allows them to thrive and the companies that use shame will not thrive as much. So, you know, I I think it's, it's up to us you know, we, we choose to wake up. I mean, I have to work. I'd love to not have to, but I have to work. So I do have to get up and work, but I get up and I choose every day that this is the work I want to do. And these are the people I want to work with. So I think that it's really unfortunate that companies have this really kind of, in my view, archaic viewpoint that I don't think is going to fly with the next generation at all. Yeah. I think what the next generation is looking for is support for them as a human, and what and, and how they want you got to grow the tree you have. And I think companies that have a more, you know, like a, the viewpoint that I feel was was when I was back in, in my earlier days of selling. It was very much that viewpoint. Leadership is the way that you progress. Being away from home is the way you progress. The amount of miles you have, the amount of dance recitals you've missed. These were all badges of honor mm. when I was an up and coming. And I just don't believe that that is true. Yeah, I think we can be stronger by Mm -hmm. allowing our people to be who they are and not trying to force them down some path because you're shaming them.
2: Well said. Talked earlier about, uh, and then Johnny tried to bring it up earlier is about PLG. So it's pretty hot topic for a lot of people that are either thinking about it or companies that are experimenting with it. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with it today?
0: Yeah. So product-led growth is something that obviously I've been a part of since my VMware days. That was a great example of what I kind of consider like the two main versions of product-led growth, which is, you know, kind of like the try and buy or freemium motion, right? There's that one, that's one component of it. And then the other component is, is how viral is it once it lands? So Not every product will have both of those components. You know, I've talked to some of my friends that have gone to PLG companies, like a try and buy company, but they, you know, you can struggle from going from one department to another. VMware didn't have that issue because you're selling into the data center. And so people would know if virtualization was an option instead of going on a physical machine. And so more and more projects would be put on. Your machines and so your your consumption, if you will, would go up and up. And now in those days, you bought licenses, but in the AWS model, it's consumption model. You're just putting more compute power into the cloud. You put more compute power onto VMware, Stripe. You purchase that. You put more. You know, you you put more and more purchases on it. It's consumption model. You're making money the more they spend on your platform. Snowflake consumption model. You're 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 taking off um, once you you land and you're capturing all those dollars as they expand. Now, the product I'm selling today isn't that type of PLG. It's try and buy. So it's got a very, very healthy um, try. And actually, there's an e-com for, there's an e-com for it too, because some people will buy it almost in a B2C sense because it'll be a tool that they can use in one-off. And then I've got enterprise deals where they're buying the product for you know hundreds of seats within their company. So we, we can kind of hit all ends of the spectrum, but we are more department by deport, department, meaning if I've sold into traditional L&D, that doesn't necessarily know that the selling department who's training the sellers or training end customers is aware that Articulate is in the, is an, is in the company already, is a tool that's being used by the L&D department. It's kind of invisible to them. So in those instances, I think it really takes, it, it, I call that inorganic growth that require sales and marketing or channel partners. If you've got a channel partner involved as well to navigate from department to department or division to division, you need more of that. You need to, you need to create more exposure. So you need to take the positive use case, the use case that that's um, already working really well, and then use that to get more uh, to cross pollinate across the different departments. And that does take a bit more, Um, work and effort in collaboration with marketing, because there's a lot, there's a many to one element, I think, to doing that as well. Um, So I think it's just, it's important to know because people be like, oh, you're PLG. I said, we should probably dig into that (laughs) (laughs) to understand what's meant because if you just assume it's PLG, it's all viral. Well, the land could be viral, but does that mean that the expand is as well or does the expand take a little bit more work? Right.
2: And where does client success or or uh, play a part in in PLG?
0: So, I think that if you look at it in terms of like if we call things inorganic versus organic growth, organic growth would be I have a an install. Let's say I'm selling to learning and development. They've bought the product, and as they expand usage, they're going to add seats. That's organic growth that I'm going to get anyways, right? And I've got my success team and and here my success runs all renewals that are responsible for the health, um, you know, onboarding and health of the client, making sure they renew. And we, of course, want to increase our partnership term uh, length agreements with our clients, in addition to make sure that we're in a healthy state so we can continue to capture the organic growth that's happening. So the customer's happy as they expand their projects, that group will will consume and, and add more on the um. On the Articulate side. The sellers are responsible for finding either new seats that weren't going to be added organically to a brand new project or a new subscription within that company or a new logo. So the sellers where we're working it, the sellers are responsible for the inorganic growth. It's basically a new sale. If you're selling to the sales department and you've already sold an L&D. You might have an introduction, but you have to completely resell that group on why they should be using us. So I have the sellers doing the heavier lift selling. And then I have this customer success folks making sure we reduce churn and contraction and that we keep that flow of the organic growth going.
1: It's even deeper than that. Like I heard you articulate, no pun intended, but I heard you talk about in a uh, podcast one time, like your background as starting off as sales engineer and then moving to inside sales and then moving to, um, enterprise sales, like the mechanics, especially in product led growth of getting that right on covering the customer experience. Like, what have you learned? Like I heard you talk about it. Like you went from inside sellers to, uh, to pods with an account executive and inside sellers and, You've, you've come up with a bunch of models. What have you learned about that that you could give some advice to our listeners about and how critical it is, especially in product-led growth, that you get it right?
0: Yes, this is a great question um, because, to your point, if you have your – and I'm going to focus on the sales team. The, the success team, I predominantly – am going to organize based on customer spend. So the higher the spend, the more I want to retain it and the lower account to rep ratio I will have. Okay. So in general, that's how success will be led. On the selling side, the challenge with PLG is, is I could be selling to um, name any large company, Amazon, AWS, whatever, right? I'm selling to this large organization that could have many small orders. Yeah. So do I want to have my enterprise rep who I'm trying to have drive, you know, hundred thousand million dollar deals or whatnot. Do I want them spending time booking a five seat order or, you know, a five seat transaction? You really don't. But what CFOs have an allergic reaction to understandably is the concept of overlaying or double paying. So what you'll see, like what Oracle did in the old days to, to accommodate this is they would have an inside sales team and, They'd support the enterprise team, but they'd only get credit up to a certain dollar amount or whatnot. And then um, the enterprise team would get credit on the whole thing. Yeah, um, There's a lot of like via, uh, VMware we did where field sellers were mapped to inside. So we had both, but they covered the same territory. The inside was responsible for driving the transactional business, if you will, and then the, the enterprise deals were from the field rep, but that's a double, that's a full double comp model. That's expensive. That means for every territory, you've got two full sellers. Yeah, I, I think that's really, really tough to do unless you are a VMware, maybe growing at hundred percent year over year. Most of us aren't VMware. So we've got to be a little more cost conscious, especially in this type of market. You can't just throw bodies at problems. Um, so I think you've got to be you know smarter about, I think you do have to solve that issue. One of the one of the um, ways we're looking at it as we do have our enterprise sellers, but for seat um, orders under a certain size, I still have my SMB team close it. And then how I account for that is I just have my quotas be representative of the fact that they're both going to get credit on it. So the quota is higher for both parties. And then the deals that are enterprise, but under X number of seats Basically, both people get credit. Because what can happen is your enterprise seller could do what let's say they do an event at Amazon and they do this awesome webinar and mm. people get super excited about it. Challenge with the product I'm selling right now is you can, you can sell multiple subscriptions with multiple instances to one client. So they could end up with, you know, 20 new instances get spun up. Well, they should get credit on that, but I don't want them processing 20 orders. Right. Yeah. So I'd still have that processed by my SMB team. And then I would still give credit because otherwise, what's the incentive? You know, I don't I want you got to be careful about having your field sellers be disincentivized to do those types of things if they're not going to get credit for things that land. You know, it's very, very comp is very sensitive, as we all know.
2: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it really can drive unintended consequences. So I don't know that there's any perfect model. I've done pods where it's like, you know multiple um inside people to one field person. I've done one to one. And in this model, I'm kind of just raising both quotas and taking a certain deal size and having it run by the S and B team. Well
2: you take a lot of friction out of it when you do that too, what you just did. Yeah.
0: I don't want so them I- to be adversarial with each other.
2: Right. That that'll easily happen. And then guess who's in the middle of all those fights?
0: It's, yeah, sales management it's coming yeah. to mom and asking to help <laughs> out. <laughs>
1: So you have such a great, you have such a great background. And I think maybe this is like we could probably come back and we we might do that, have another podcast just on this resourcing, because I know that you believe that you basically put together resources and map that resource to basically the way the customer buys. And that seems to be what elite companies are doing is that they're figuring out these models based upon the motions that the customers are going through and then mapping the resources to that. So um, I I want to come back and talk to you about how you've done that over the years. I've just heard you talk about it. And I think you've just got some great, some, some great um, uh, knowledge and skills around that. I really want to talk to you about this last uh, big kind of topic here in the remaining time that we have. And um, I, you have, I've heard you speak about, Women in leadership roles. Um, I don't know how other uh, another way to say this, but I think that you're one of the 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 best examples of it in in our experience with you. I don't want to limit you and say you're a great female leader. You are a great leader, but you have a great perspective that only you could bring to this podcast for us today on women in leadership roles. And you've talked about the confidence code and. Would you just give us kind of your high level perspective on that, like your own experience and then any advice to, um, you know, to, to women that are coming up the ranks and decisions that they're making and, and uh, challenges that, that could only come from somebody like you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, probably like many People, I don't know if it's gender specific, but, you know, I, I would find myself suffering from imposter syndrome, either when yeah. I was new in a role or before I was going to go for a role. Like, am I going to be able to do this? Do I really have the background to be able to be successful right when I get into that role? And I've taken a number of risks in my career and I o- almost always would worry about it. I'd still do it, but I'd be worried about it. And when I read, I can't remember who recommended the confidence code to me, but I listened to the audiobook. I used to commute up to the city back and forth every day. And I, and I would listen to this and it was the first time that someone had explained, you know, a potential like chemical or biological difference as to why I would see this pattern of women, myself included, n- waiting until I felt over ready to kind of go for something as opposed to maybe leaning in a bit before I felt hundred percent ready. And my male counterparts just never blinked an eye. I felt I, that was my perspective. I'm not saying that was true. I don't know their mm-hmm. truth, but from my perspective, I felt like, well, that person wasn't doing as well as I am. And they, they don't seem worried at all, like going for this yeah. role. Um, and so it, it, dawned on me when they they talk about in the book that you know women will tend to wait till they feel 110% ready. And men in general, this is a very generalized statement. I'm not saying this is true for everyone, but could tend to like take a risk when they feel 60% ready. And once I realized that wait, we're all just we're all just people trying to figure it out. They don't know anything different than I do. I just need to be uncomfortable I need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. That's the trick, yes, yes. and so that's kind of the advice that I give now. When I and I've mentored a number of women that have debated going into leadership roles over the years now, and when when they talk to me about being nervous to be ready, I tell them like, you're never going to feel ready. What I'm telling you is, you've been at the top of your game for two years at what you're doing. You've been through this program. Like we, you, we, you are you. You're as ready as you're going to be. And then you're going to have to go in and you're going to have to figure it out. But that's the same as everybody else. So you've got to be okay being uncomfortable and recognizing that all the other humans that have ever made that jump are also uncomfortable.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: You have to be regardless of gender.
2: Comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think fear of failure is a beautiful thing because once you're in that role, like you said, you're going to figure it out. And the times that I've been in it, there's this huge fear of failure that's completely motivating. To, to do anything and everything to be successful. So yeah. I think it yeah. works out.
1: And then yeah. you have a story about being a mom and being on either a call, a zoom call and some spilled beverage or something on your keyboard, or could, could you <laughs> share that with us. Cause it's, it was a pivotal time for you. I think.
0: It it was so, as I mentioned earlier, I was raised in the technology environment where being away from home and you're, you work late and work is very important and, and how you show up and how intensely you work. That's, that's your merit. Like that's how you're judged at how much of value you are to the company. And my, it took, it took until I was with, I had my second kid, my second child, my son, and I was home. I, we had a nanny at the, we're fortunate to have a nanny at the time. So she'd been with him all day because my husband and I were working and then I was giving him his bath and I was sitting there on my laptop because I was behind on email because I had to be home to relieve the nanny. So I wasn't completely caught up from work. So I had the laptop. He's in the bathtub splash. Who knows what was going on in there? Some battle. I don't know. Something was happening. So he's splashing and this big wave comes over and like lands on my laptop and I snapped at him. And his sweet little face looked at me like, oh, no, I've done something really wrong. And it that look on his face stabbed me in the heart. And I was like, it was like literally an epiphany came over me. And I was like, what am I doing? This is his time. He's only going to be awake for 30 more minutes. I'm not curing cancer on these emails. They can wait for 30 more minutes. Hmm. I shut the laptop down. And I was like, when I'm with him, I'm with him. And when I'm at work, I'm at work and I'm not going to feel apologetic about either circumstance. And that's where the, the concept in my mind of being unapologetically present really resonated with me. And from that day, when I, you know, I work probably a solid 10 hours a day solid. And then if I have to catch up later, I will, but I'm probably solid for 10. But when I clock out, you know, when I'm at the end of the evening, when I'm preparing dinner, I'm sitting down with dinner with the family, I'm on my phone. I'm not checking Slack. I'm not on the laptop. I'm asking about their day. I'm curious. I'm engaged and I'm present. And I think that has made me happier as a mom and a better mom for them. Because they know when I'm in here working, mommy's working. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to wait. I can learn about bugs or whatever it is later, <laughs> 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 or termite mounds that go to 40 feet or whatever is the fact of yeah. the day. I need to learn. Can wait for a little bit longer, but yeah, that that moment um, I think changed my life, and I hope for people that are listening to that that are parents and trying to navigate, you know, work. There is no balance. There's just, you know, making it work for you and being present in both circumstances that's that's what has worked the best for me
1: i think that's awesome i'm as i'm just listening to your answers none of that has to do with gender it is incredibly appropriate for anybody that's listening and i thank you for that johnny do you mind if i do a quick recap, and go then you it. get ready with some, uh, with some special, uh, questions for rapid Jamie fire questions. Yeah, yeah. Some rapid fire questions, but let me just go back and man, we had, we covered so much ground here, Jamie. I, uh, and there's so many areas that I think, you know, I'd, I'd love to have you come back and talk more about the, you know, product led growth is such a big kind of catch-all phrase and there's so much going on in there that um I'd I'd love to have you come back and talk about that but so we talked about the first advice that you gave was when you when you were transitioning i think it was from ink to me um in the uh you you treated your quest for a job like a full-time job. And that's such good advice. I say to people that are in sales, I say, handle your 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 next job and going after your next job as if it was a sales opportunity. And not only will you treat it with great qualification, but people will see how you treat it with great qualification. I found that was just really, really good advice. Um, I loved your advice about, I hear people talking about you know, well, my company does this on training or I wish I had, you know, force, I have people call me and say, hey, we need force management to get in here. And it's somebody that comes from another company. But I always say, well, what else are you doing on your own? And your advice was you went to look at who's the best, regardless of any training I'm getting, who's the best at negotiating, who's the best at, um, you know, prospecting, who's the best at closing. And you went and found uh, and I think that's such great advice. I remember doing that years ago when I was at Xerox, and I was just exposed to so many great skill sets and knowledge. Then we moved into this topic of rock star and rising star, and the the um, the the realization that you had in transitioning from individual contributor to leader or manager. Um, you know, you were contemplating, you know, I see people that are the buddy and the friend, and I see people that are direct and an a-hole and you're like trying to figure all that out. And you, you really brought it down is that that's not where you're going to find your identity in either one of those. You're going to find your identity in coaching people to get unstuck. I thought like, if you could give any advice to people about the next job, it's like, you have to be able to coach people to get unstuck, not do their job. Uh, you know, not let them get away with not doing their job. You have to get them unstuck. And that's great, great advice. Loved what you said on having to meet people where they are uh, versus treating everybody the same way. And a phrase that you used, I think is so legit. It says you were focused on being fair, not equal. Um, And if you focus on fair, Equality is going to sort itself out. And I thought that that was just really, really good advice. Then you actually told us about a program that you built called the Rising Star Program at Zendesk. You talked to us about kind of the major, I know it's deeper than this, but you talked about the major components, which is a great takeaway lead in any particular order lead the business you got to understand how to be a great operator so what are the critical components of the business of forecasting and recruiting and and all those things Um, lead yourself you talked about self-awareness and self-assessment there has got to be some component of that and leading the people i'm going to go look up this scarf model Uh, i loved how you i don't know what it is and we'll figure it out and put it in the show notes for people But it's basically understanding how people respond. I thought that was such a great takeaway because I think people's response to things tells me a lot about where they're coming from, what they know, what they don't know, and triggers me sometimes. And somebody's response to something triggers me. And I think I could probably learn a lot from that. You also talked about, yeah, you also talked about, I love this one, subtly, you said, but the communication path, I'm paraphrasing. The communication path is the responsibility of the leader or the manager, meaning if you are, and this happened to me, um, I tend to lead through stories and examples and emotion. And when I was leading people that were more like engineering backgrounds, let's say, that were, you know, that sometimes can be noise for people. And even in sales, it's, it's the seller's responsibility to pick the correct communication path for a great outcome. And I loved how you described that. I think as a leader, you really, really have to understand that. can't lead everybody the same way. goes down a level to you can't communicate to everybody the same way. And I don't think people always get to that level. And that was really powerful for me. We went over there to the, um, uh, we went over to PLG, spent so much time, you know, great. We only, I mean, we only kind of scratched the surface, but you talked about the difference between try and buy and land and expand. And, talked about inorganic growth and organic growth and the struggles that most people try to deal with with double comping it but not doing it with you know adding it in the quota which is such an easy thing to do to take it off the table but many people struggle with with doing that um, and then the last big topic we talked about which um, which I set up to use your expect, uh, expertise and being a subject matter expert as being a a great woman leader. Your answers were so awesome and so pure. It had nothing to do with gender, and you talked about imposter syndrome, which we all have experienced in our life. Be comfortable being uncomfortable, which has come up multiple times on this podcast before, and then taking more risk. Uh, you know, the men and women of the 101st Airborne. They, the, the difference between us and them—it's like courageous and risk—is. They're still afraid to go, but they jump anyways. And I think that once somebody explained it to me that way, everybody's afraid to go. Everybody's afraid to jump, but some people jump anyways. And I thought that was just a really good perspective. And then the last one really hit home for me. And I missed opportunities for this. And I'm so glad that you brought it up unapologetically present. My wife used to say to me, John, we know that you're going to be gone, but when you're here, be here. And um, I just think that that's, I think it's, that's, it's going to be advice. that's going to be great 20 years from now. So I think Johnny I have heard done.
2: that myself, Johnny, a couple <laughs> <Yeah>. times.
1: <laughs> no, yeah. here.
2: Well, you're physically here. Yeah. You're not mentally. No
1: emotionally doubt, dude. Here.
2: So I've no heard doubt. that a couple of times in my. No my doubt. Career. Did I miss anything? No, you did a great job. Great All job. Right,
1: take us home, Johnny.
2: So Jamie, we have a couple of rapid fire questions. You you ready? I'm ready. All right. How about your ideal day off of work?
0: Good book, the ocean, my family, and a nice meal with a crisp glass of wine at the end of the day.
2: All right. Well, that leads to the next one. Your favorite meal.
0: My favorite meal would probably be my favorite dish that my great grandmother made up because she was a domestic worker in Sicily and her uh, rich employer would say, Josephina, make me something different today. And so she made up this sausage, mushroom um, rice-based stuffing. That is my absolute favorite. You can serve it at Thanksgiving or stuffed in a bell pepper in the summer, and it's its amazing. Love it's all scratch it. delicious. Yes,
2: Love it. My mouth is watering right now. This <laughs> yeah. Description. How about a favorite movie, Jamie?
0: Not a huge movie buff, but my favorite movie of all time that I watch every single year, and I know it's seasonal, but Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, best movie of all time. I've watched it every single year since 1989.
2: I almost knew it was going to be a Christmas movie like that. How about the best (laughs) concert you've ever been to?
0: Um, Again, not a huge concert goer, but I was a huge Tori Amos fan in the 90s. And I would go to see her anytime she was in the Bay Area or in Southern California, religiously, probably to like the early 2000s, till I probably had kids and then Uh not so much anymore.
2: How about a favorite charity? Do you have a favorite charity you'd like to talk about?
0: I do. Um, So I've been a... um, contributor to donors choose for a number of years. My both my mom and dad were teachers. My sister's a teacher. Her spouse is a teacher. My sister-in-law is a teacher, as is her spouse. Um, And there are so many schools that are underfunded. So you can donate to a local classroom. You can tell them why you're donating. And then when that project's complete, all the students write you a thank you note and they get sent to you um, as a thank you. So you feel like you can, you're really contributing in a very real way to people that are local to you. And um, I just find it very touching and I'm glad I can help other kids other than my own.
2: Could you give us the name of that one more time? We want to put it in show notes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Donors choose.
2: Donors choose, and we could find it on like DonorsChoose.com? Dot uh, org. Dot org. Okay, yep. great. Yep. So we got that in the show notes. So Jamie, Johnny's going to end it, but I just wanted to tell you how grateful we are to have you on. And I think the listeners got a lot out of your your podcast. Thank you so much and, and best of luck in the rest of your career.
0: Thank you. Well, I appreciate you both having me on. I hope the listeners got something out of it that I, I wouldn't, that would have. Be, that's my goal that's my hope so i really appreciate y'all having me on it's been wonderful getting to to meet both of you as I'm well i'm sure
2: they've
1: gotten a lot out of it sure amy you you absolutely crushed it thank you for taking the time i know that um it's you know towards the end of the quarter and and you finding time to do that with us is is fantastic we appreciate you we appreciate your perspective today keep crushing it we're uh We're really loving watching your star uh, continue to shine and continue to rise. And so thank you again for being with us. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you all for listening to Revenue Builders.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.